All right. Well, good morning, everyone. We do have our good morning. We do have our handouts um, in the back. So this morning we will continue on the uh, the book Deity and Decree, and we are on chapter eleven, the decree and related questions. So this morning uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last time and hop in. And for time's sake. Uh, we won't go into catechism or the confession, but we're going to hop right into intro just for, the, just for the sake of time. So with that, we're talking about God's decree and then the subject of sin and suffering. So last week we spent quite a bit of time kind of working through what are some of these texts that talk about sin, that talk about suffering, and that talk about God's decree, his sovereignty, right, and, and, and his eternal purpose. And we covered uh, four specific things under this heading. One, sin is a defect. Two, God permits sin and suffering. Three, sin is the result of man's free choices. And four, suffering results from various causes. And a part of what we said was that God decrees all things, including sin, And yet at the same time, he in no way approves of sin where it receives his approbation. And yet, even with that tension, he still remains holy, just, and righteous in all his ways. So, going into this morning then, we're then going to hit on the the last piece, right? So we had those four, and and then point E, if you will, or point five. God's permission is not a bare permission. And this is really really what we're going to hone in this morning uh, for for Sunday school. So what does that mean? What does that mean to say that God's permission is not a bare permission? And what it means is that God's permitting sin is not an end in itself, meaning God has a greater purpose for which he orders and directs sin in his good creation. Now, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. So, this, uh, if you guys remember from a couple weeks ago, this is like the, you know, um, like one of like the major texts in the New Testament when, when we think about the sovereignty of God. We spent some time with it, what was that, I don't know, a m- month ago? But I want to look at, at, at verse 11 again, because where we're going to head is answering the question, why, right? And we're going to try to look biblically, why does God, why, right? So that's, that is the intent for this morning. So if we can, let's read uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Can I have a volunteer to read verse 11? Go ahead, Crystal. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All right, excellent. And here uh, there's a, a quote from uh, Sam Renahan on your notes, and it says this. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in all things and events, God is fulfilling his own purposes. In God's permission, sin and suffering are means to an end, not ends in themselves. Joseph told his brothers that what they had intended for evil, God used for good. Peter told the Jews that in the wickedness of the murder of Jesus Christ, God had accomplished a foreordained purpose of salvation. This is 
concursus, the concurrence of the first cause with second causes. Which leads him into the this, this second quote. Man's sin, considered in itself, could never accomplish the goods to which God guides it. God does not permit sin or suffering as ends in themselves. They are not the product. God's permission of sin and suffering always has a higher and greater purpose. Which leads us to this then. What are the ends or goals or purposes for which God permits sin and suffering? And what I'll do is I'll kind of open that up just as a, as a question, not to be rhetorical. And then what we'll do is we'll go explore that. So as you guys think about that, why do you think scripturally God would allow and permit sin in his good creation? Why do, why do, you, why do you think? Yes, yes. That, that, that it goes back to this ultimate cause when we think about God's glory. Yes. Nope. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Good. Norm. Also similar to showcasing a diamond against a black velvet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We're, by, by way of contrast, how it makes one brighter against the backdrop of the other. Yep. No, I think that's... No, absolutely. All right. No, I think that's good. And, and, and that's the route we're going to go. So what we're going to do for, as I'd say, the majority of the time is we're going to focus on that ultimate end, right? That ultimate purpose, which is God's glory, right? And we're going to see this from the scripture. But then we have, um, real, I don't know if you want to call them like secondary or like almost ultimate or they're, they're not the ultimate, but they are also appropriate ends or purposes for which God has, has ordained and, and ordered um, sin and suffering. And, and that would be specifically uh, for the Christian's good, that he uses it for our good. And so we'll, and then we'll take some time and then we'll look at some text kind of related to that. So, so with that, let's, let's look at that ultimate, um, uh, ultimate end, ultimate purpose, right? The ultimate purpose, why God does everything he does, it is for his glory. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> and it's interesting in, in, uh, in this particular text. So uh, if you remember anything about the church in Corinth, right, you know that it was not a well-ordered assembly, right? If it was anything, right, you sometimes question how Paul can use such like high and lofty and kind terms to describe them, right? But the reality is they were, they were a church like any church where it, it's got the mix of Weakness and sin and other things. And in the midst of uh, 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 some things going on in, in Corinth related to uh, eating, um, uh, uh, eating at an idol uh, festival, uh, a feast, Paul then uh, is appealing to them. And in verse 31, right, he, he basically is trying to talk about food and some of these other things and what's the appropriate way to think about it. And then in verse 31 of chapter 10, he says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, there's a lot that could be said on here that won't be said. But the one thing that I do want to say is when we think about 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, is that it is appropriate for us to see that Paul does not take 
anything out from this all things, right? Whatever you do, do all. But I think there is a deeper reason why we are to do this. And that is because God glorifies himself in all that he does. If you will, Christians are to do everything for God's glory because God himself does everything for his glory, right? And that becomes the basis or the thought by which we're then, um, we are then to follow. So that's why Paul could even you know, say it in passing, right? Whatever you do, do all to God's glory because it's this overriding principle. So the question then becomes, well, upon what basis do we see this, right? And that's what we're going to do. So we're going to work through some of these texts. So there's a quote on your notes. Yes, I did include it. So Jonathan Edwards has a, a little book uh, that he wrote many years ago, and it's called The End for Which God Created the World. And it, it basically, it, it's to show the agreeableness and the reasonableness of God's ultimate purpose for creation and then all subordinate purposes working up to that ultimate purpose. If you will, how all of them work together and in line. And it, it's a really fascinating read how he works through this. But what he says here I thought was really helpful. He says here, it is fitting that God show by his works what he values most himself. And so that's what we're going to see here is over and over again, God is going to do these things and then say that he does it for his name. And it's because he values himself the most. That he does not put humanity above himself, but humanity in its proper place with God as being ultimate in all things. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And what we're going to be doing with, with a lot of these texts here, I'm really borrowing from John Piper's book, um, uh, the pleasures of God, and in particular, uh, chapter four, where he, uh, uh, the, the title, uh, "The Pleasure of God in His Fame," where he really tries to work out this thought how God is working and doing all these things for His name. So, look with me in Matthew chapter six. We're turning to the Lord's Prayer, right, where Jesus teaches us what manner in which we are to pray. <clears throat> Uh, uh, so he says in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, who'd be willing to read? All right. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All right. Awesome. And then, um, right, that, that idea of hallowed be your name, right? That's, that's, that's like the first thing we do when we, when we pray, we pray in that manner, right? It's to hallow God's name. And then can I have a volunteer be willing to read that quote from Piper dozens of times? You'd be willing to take that. You're going to go for two for two. <laughs> dozens of times, Scripture says that God does things for his name's sake. But if you ask what is really moving the heart of God in that statement, and many like it, the answer is that God delights in having his name known. The first and most important prayer that can be prayed is, Hallowed be thy name. This is a request to God that he would work to cause people to hallow his name. God loves to have more and more people hallow his name, and so his son teaches Christians to put their prayers in line with this great passion of the Father. Lord, cause more and more people to hallow your name. That is, esteem, admire, respect, cherish, honor, and praise his name. It is basically a missionary prayer. 
So the more I thought about it and the more it seemed right to put the stress on fame and not just name. Fame means well-known name. His name is who he really is, especially who he is for us. The point of the present chapter is that he delights in being known for who he really is. He loves a worldwide reputation. That's why I will talk much about the name of God in this chapter, but have chosen the title, The Pleasure of God in His Fame. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. So we see kind of building this idea, right? And we, we, we talked about this in previous lessons that behind God's name, if you will, is it's, he's revealing who he is, right? And, and as Christians, people in Christ, that is who he is for us, right? All, those, um, all, all that God is, if you will, for us, right? In, in, a, in a beautiful way. And so I like what he says there, but that we appropriately start with that prayer. Hallowed be your name because God and his name is to be hallowed first and foremost. So now turn with me. And, we're, and what we're going to do is kind of trace like what Edward said, right? It is fitting that God show by his works what he values most. So we're going to see that with, with his works and how God specifically or intentionally will tie in for my namesake, right? Or I say for his namesake. So Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to have to keep up because it's going to be, uh, you know, put some band-aids on, on the fingers because we're going to be flipping. Let's go to uh, 1 Samuel 12, uh, 22, and let's look there, right? So this is, the context is uh, Israel is asking for a king, and, uh, and they want uh, King Saul, right? Samuel rebukes them, and then... And then we, we, we read this in 1 Samuel 12 in verse uh, 22. <clears throat> in verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Right? So notice that, right? The for himself at the end and in the middle for his great namesake. So Samuel had rebuked the people sternly. And there was this uh, um, uh, uh, you know, shock and, and repentance with the people, right? And there was, there was this fear. And you see that in verse 20, right? Where he says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not aside from following the Lord, right? But then he says, he then says <clears throat> that, God is not going to forsake you because it depends on you. God is not going to forsake you. What? For his great name's sake. Right? And so, uh, and, and I thought Piper had just put this really well. Um, <clears throat> if I can have a volunteer read uh, that Piper quote, why will God? Why will God not? And I love that. I, lo- I love those last two sentences, right? Because that foundation is God himself. And we benefit from God's commitment to himself, if you will, right? We get the overflow. So now turn with me. So go, uh, let, let's go over to, to the prophets. 
Um, actually, you know what? Let me do this in order. I should have put it in order. That would have been easier. Let's go to 2 Samuel uh, 7.23 first, and then we'll, go to Jer- or then we'll go to Isaiah. Sorry, I'm getting... I did not do the best job with uh, ordering that, so I apologize. All right, 2 Samuel 7. So just one book over. 2 Samuel 7, and then we'll look at verse 23. All right, and then who'd be willing to read 2 Samuel 7, verse 23? He does. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before you people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. All right, excellent. So we're working under this heading of God forming a people, right? And we see that even here in verse 23, right? With, with this prayer where it says um, uh, that, who, uh, that whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, right? God acting for his name, right? He gathered this people for his namesake. Now, look with me to, um, let's go to Isaiah 43. So we'll keep working your way to the right, if you will, after Psalms, Isaiah. Isaiah 43, we'll do Isaiah, and then we'll do Jeremiah. So Isaiah 43, and then verse 21. Isaiah 43, Yes. Excellent. So again, talking about Israel and saying, this is a people I formed for myself, right? That emphasis for myself. So why is God acting? He's acting for his own name. All right. And then uh, turn with me to to Jeremiah. So go one, one more prophet over, if you will, Isaiah, Jeremiah. We'll go to Jeremiah 13 and let's look at Jeremiah 13 in verse 11. Who'd be willing to read uh, Jeremiah 13, 11? Brian? For as the loin cloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. Yeah, isn't that fascinating, right? And notice the connection, right? So God intended for Israel to cling to him, right? Putting, put, putting them on, if you will, like a waistband, right? But it was, but it was for what purpose, right? Look in verse 11. <clears throat> that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, right? So here we see that it was the people who were formed, who were then to, to respond, right? And delight in the God who brought them near. And, and that's, what, that's what 1 Peter 2, right, uh, you know, says... Um, that uh, Pastor Ron had hit on a uh, n- number of weeks ago. In 1 Peter 2, in verse 9, when he says in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, right? So God gathers a people, and it is to be then reverberated back in praise as we see and behold God's excellencies, right? Or his attributes, right? His attributes of glory, something that's majestic, 
So, um, oh, and I thought this one was really interesting. All right, so let's go back uh, farther into the Old Testament. Again, I told you guys, band-aids, right? Um, so go to Exodus chapter 9. So we're going back to the plagues leading up to the Exodus, right? And I really like what was brought out here by, um, by, by Piper. Uh, Go, go with me to Exodus chapter 9. So I believe this is the seventh plague. Yeah, it's the seventh plague. Um, and Exodus chapter 9, and we'll read verses 13 through 16. And then who'd be willing to read Romans 9, 17? All right, you'll get Romans 9, 17. And then who can get Exodus? I did this in the back, backwards order. Exodus uh, chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. Norm? All right, so Norm, you'll start us. Brian, you'll get uh, Romans 9, uh, what did I say, 17. Okay. Go ahead, Norm. Exodus 9, 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, so that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth Hi then Brian for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, awesome. So, so no, notice a couple of things. In, in, um, in Exodus 9, right, where he says um, in, in verse 14, um, where he says uh, that he's going to send all these plagues, and then there's a so that clause. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. What is God doing? The same pattern that he always does, right? He is making his name known, and he's going to show it through Pharaoh, right? The highest king of the land. But then notice what he says in verse 15, and I thought this was really interesting. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth, right? It's not, it's not as if God did ten plagues because the ninth one just didn't have the juice, right? Like that, 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 that's not what's going on. In fact, there's a, there's a much bigger polemic going on, right? It's the, the 10 gods of Egypt, the major gods of Egypt. And God is showing how he is triumphing over each of them, right? And then he says in verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up. Can you imagine being in Moses' shoes, right? You go to Pharaoh and you're like, yeah, you think you're here. God, the Lord says, I raised you up for this purpose, right? Like that is like putting like... The, you know, the, the head on it. So look, so look, um, look at what, look at what um, Piper says in the quote here. Um, if I can have, who'd be willing to read the Piper quote where he says, so in the Exodus? No. This text is so crucial that the Apostle Paul quotes it 
in Romans 9.17 to sum up God's purpose in the Exodus. God says to Pharaoh, But for this purpose I have caused you to stand, or appointed you, to show you my power, so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. So the point of the Exodus was to make a worldwide reputation for God. The point of the ten plagues and miraculous Red Sea crossing was to demonstrate the astonishing power of God on behalf of his freely chosen people, with the aim that this reputation, this name, would be declared throughout the whole world. Is it not clear, then, that God has great pleasure in his fame? All right, thanks, Matt. So we see that. I think Piper really kind of helps put that together, right? That it's not just a name that's in private, but God wants to put his name on display for all the earth, right? Which is tying in this purpose. God is doing all these things, and it's to be outward. It's to be expressed. It's to be something that's beheld. So then look with me on your notes. So under the next heading we'll then see that even with the Babylonian captivity and deliverance of the people of Israel is something that God does for his glory. So look with me to Isaiah. Let's see here. Let me do this. Um, Again, I got to put it in order. So we're going to go to Psalms first. Let's go to Psalms. Uh, Psalm 106, and we'll read verses 7 and 8. All right, in Psalm 106, and then let's read verses uh, 7 and 8. Can I have a volunteer who'd be willing to read verses 7 and 8? Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but you were rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Yes. So here we see how how Psalm 106 is connecting back to the Exodus. And notice that in verse 8. Yet he saved them, right? And then that, that, that intentional clause, for his name's sake. And then in, and then, uh, and then in verse 8, that the word that functioning as a purpose, right? Uh, that he might make known his mighty power, right? So God working for his glory, for his namesake, for his fame, and then to showcase his power. Um, Turn with me to Isaiah. So we'll go a couple books over to the prophet Isaiah. Now, when we get to Isaiah, he's going to be talking more about the Babylonian, uh, or um, actually, no, I'm sorry. In Isaiah 63, it's talking about... um, put these two together. Isaiah 63 is is going to also talk about the Exodus and God's deliverance. And then it's in Ezekiel where we're going to see uh, the Babylonian captivity. My apologies. All right. So Isaiah 48, and let's look at verses nine through 11. Isaiah 48, and we'll read verses nine through 11. All right. Could be willing to read verses nine through 11. Crystal. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. 
or how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Yeah, what a what a beautiful text, right? So God, it's for his sake that he defers his anger and he tries Israel. And then in verse 11, right, he tests them. In verse 11, for my own sake. But then he says it twice, right? Repetition for emphasis. And then he asks this follow-up question. For how should my name be profane, right? So there's, there's this sense in which God does not want his name to be taken lightly because his name is to always be esteemed, not only by his people, but it's because God himself esteems it. And then in verse 11, we see here, my glory I will not give to another. All right, so turn with me. um, Let's go over to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, right? And in Ezekiel chapter 36, so we're dealing with uh, the, the Babylonian captivity and... Uh, under, under captivity, God then speaks through the prophet Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 36, uh, look with me at verses 20 through 23. He says, But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of this land. But notice in verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So we see this same theme, this same idea where God is tying in the holiness of his name, the separateness of his name, who he is, and how Israel considered it a light thing and profaned it. And so we see that he says, not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Right? And this goes back to that Edwards quote, right? God's works, how does, he, how does he say it? It is fitting that God show by his works what he values most himself. So we see even here, right, in the pinnacle, right, of, 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 of Israel's sin, if you will, right, God acting, and it is for his name. In fact, if you go over, uh, like, one more page, go to Ezekiel 39. Go to Ezekiel 39. In verse 25. In Ezekiel 39 and verse 25. And who be willing to read Ezekiel 39 verse 25? 
Alright, Crystal. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Alright, excellent. So, so we see this idea, right, where God is acting. We've seen it in how he's uh, forming a people for himself. We saw it with what happened with Israel in the Exodus. We've seen it with Israel um, and their deliverance, right, from captivity. God acting for his name. And we also see it in uh, forgiveness, like in Psalm 2511, where he talks about how uh, uh, it's, it's, a, it's like a psalmist prayer that God would for, forgive his sins for his name's sake, right? For God's name's sake. Or even um, in, uh, uh, with the Lord Jesus, right? In John chapter 12. Turn over to John chapter 12. Turn with me to John chapter 12. And look with me in verses 27 and 28. All right, uh, John 12 and verse 27, the Lord Jesus speaking, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So even with Christ coming to the pinnacle of his work, right, with that, with that crucifixion work that he does on our behalf. Even that was to the glory of the name of the Father, right? That it, it's almost like we are the, uh, uh, the, the benefits, right? It's kind of like the spillover with what's done for God's name. And I like what Piper says here, where he says, this is what John meant when he said in 1 John 2.12 on your notes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for the sake of his name. So whether we are reading in the Old Testament or the New, the great ground of our forgiveness is God's allegiance to his holy name and the unswerving pleasure that he takes in making the worth and righteousness of that name known, especially in the gospel message that Christ died both to justify the ungodly and vindicate the Father's justice. If God were ever to lose his delight in the fame of his glorious name, the foundation of our pardon would be imperiled. And so I'll even commend uh, those sections there to you about obedience and missions for the glory of God. But moving on, what I, what I want us to look at, um, uh, on your notes, right, is that God is working all things for the glory of his name, right? And we've seen this over and over, right? Because of his excellence. And what God wants to do is put that excellence on display for all to see, right? Including his grace and his justice, right? And that's why in Ephesians chapter 1, it'll, it will say over and over again, like in Ephesians 1, uh, uh, verse 6, that um, when, he, when, he, when he talks about um, election and, uh, and, and all that we have in Christ from eternity past, he says it's to the praise of the glory of his grace or to the praise of his glorious 
grace, right? That, that, is, that is the effect that it should have, is that it's a response of praise to God's glory as that attribute is highlighted. And we even see this in Romans chapter 9. And again, uh, Pastor Des, I know we'll get into this in, in, in the next two weeks on the next chapter. But where God, where he, he's, he's kind of working through these questions and answers, right, throughout the book of Romans. And in Romans 9, he encounters a couple of them. And he talks about that what if God, wanting to show his justice, right, patiently endured, right, with, with sinners, with sinful men. And then in verse 24, he says, in order that he might show the glory of his mercy, right? So it's this idea of God working all these things to highlight and showcase the, great, uh, the greatness of his name. All right, but then, so um, let me just pause there. So any, any questions or comments or thoughts, right? Just kind of working through that, that God is acting for his name, and that grounds everything that not only we do, that it's for his glory, but that, that's even what, what God is doing, uh, all things for his glory. So any, and any questions or input or thoughts? Uh, yeah. A question. So yeah. Like, without getting you too off track. Yeah. So, like, so you're talking a lot about why and why you're doing it. Yes. So like why, why in the first place? Is it necessary? Yes. That, that's where I get struggled with. Is, is like with the Lord is sovereign. Yes. But there's sin exists. Yes. And why? Why did it start with it? Yes. Kind of in the beginning, you know, like why was it there? Why was the tree there? Why? Why? What? That's where I struggle with all this. Yes. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And um, and and I, I totally feel that tension because there there are whys that we can address scripturally, right? Where, where we see the scripture either work through it or by implication or by, by putting text together, we kind of come to that, you know, okay, understanding or a, or a better perspective. Then there's other things where it's like, hey, yeah, I, I, I wonder the same thing. And I think on one of those where we might not have the specifics, but we understand that, that like the general and, and we take it in, in light of what we know in the general. And that is, it was done and orchestrated so that way God would get glory in all things. Now, I think an additional flavor, we, we probably won't have the time, is that part of the way in which it is structured is so that God not only um, highlights all, all of his attributes, but he will do so bringing the most glory to his son and what his son accomplishes by, by way of contrast. So I think, I think that also becomes an element into that, into that ultimate question, right? Because the reality is everyone wrestles with that question, right? Why evil? Why? Why, why this instead of, instead of that? So I, I, I totally am there in regards to the question, right? It's like, why was it structured the way it was? So I think those are some general reasons, even though I might not have, you know, some, some of the specifics from that standpoint. Yeah. But, but, but recognizing that tension, that feel, right, that pull. All right. And any other thought, thoughts or questions? All right. Um, so what I wanted to do is then also look that God is not only working all these things for the glory of his name, but like we so commonly say, but also for our good, right? For those of us in Christ by faith alone, 
right, for our good. So turn with me back to Ephesians. And, not, not, not Ephesians, I'm sorry, I'm getting uh, confused. Romans, uh, go with me to the, to the book of Romans. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, right, this, this beautiful text. Um, uh, man, yeah, just like, this is, this is a, if, if this is a text that um, uh, you've not considered, you know, memorizing, I would, I would strongly encourage you, just from the great comfort that it provides to us as God's people. Who'd be willing to read Romans chapter 8 and verse 28? All right, Mike. Yep, 828, yep. And we know that all things work together for good, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All right, excellent. And then even look in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? So if God was not willing to spare his son, but even gave us something that is the most, of, of the utmost value, right? how will he not work all these things for our good? Yeah, and just, so then when we, when we think about why God allows sin and suffering and why it was permitted, even within his decree from eternity past, right? we look at it from this perspective that for us as believers in Christ, he intended it for our good, that he's working all those things for our good. And turn with me uh, real quick to the book of James, uh, James um, chapter 1. And we'll, we, will, we will end it here, and then I'll leave just some of the other things uh, for, for reference, or you can read, you know, at, um, at a later point. So in James chapter 1, and what he says in James chapter 1, look with me at, um, at verses uh, 2 through uh, 4. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, right? So it's an interesting thought, right? Here you are, you're suffering in the midst of a trial, right? You're in a difficulty, but in verse 2, we are to account for this trial a certain way. We are to account for it as a benefit and not to our loss. And then in verses 3 and 4, he explains why. Because it's working for our good. And then he, James highlights to us in particular, what, what is that good thing that he is doing? He's producing in us steadfastness this patient endurance, so that we come to this maturity in Christ, right? That, that picture that he has purposed for us, which is conforming us to the image of his son, right? So we see that God permits sin and suffering for our good, for his glory, and even using it to further conform us to the pattern and image of his son. So, with that, we will come to a close again. I'll commend to you some of the things on your handouts that, that I thought were in particular helpful. Thinking about, as Christians, trials and difficulties and sufferings, how um, uh, in, in, in the catechism and in, in our confession, just some helpful things there. And then uh, Burkhoff had just a 
helpful kind of end summary, right? And, and almost kind of along your lines, Brian, like helping us to think about just this, this tension. So with that, let's go ahead and thank the Lord and, and, and we'll come to a close. Father, we do worship you and give you thanks even now. We thank you that you work for your great namesake, that you have sworn an oath. And because there is none greater for you to swear by, you swore by your own name. And for us, that is the greatest foundation we could ever ask because you will not change. Your promises and your covenant to us, they will not change. And so we do. We even find great hope in this world where sin and suffering are permitted. And we pray that you would help us even uh, to glorify your name, even while we have these, the, the short breath that is left in comparison to eternity. Pray that you'd bless this and even our morning worship in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.